Okay, well, we're in the sermon series uh, about biblical eldership, and this is our second week in this series, and the series is on the way to an ask, and the ask is, uh, may we ordain elders, lay elders in the church to serve uh, in the work of shepherding the flock for, for its continued health. That's, that's what we are going to ask and so if that's going to be the ask, what we've been trying to do is to, to describe and educate the whole fellowship as to what is an elder, that was last week, uh, how does it fit is this week. So last week we said an elder, the image for an elder is a shepherd, a shepherd. So an elder board is not like a board of trustees of a, of a nonprofit or something like that. It's a shepherd. Uh, The elders are shepherds. They're not ivory tower scholars who distance themselves from the flock um, and just think about heady things. That would be uh, kind of an abrasion to the image. Elders are shepherds. They're not hired hands, which means they have a sense of calling um, about the the people of the fellowship. That's what we talked about uh, last week. Well, this week, the question is, how do elders fit into the life of the church? How do they fit in now? And how would they fit in a month from now, two months from now? If if you said you can have, we can ordain elders to the church, how would they fit in in then? And so uh, I said this last week, and I'll say it again. It's a good little mantra to, to remember and have for yourself, which is our church structurally is elder led, deacon served, and congregationally governed. That's, uh, that's what I said we were, and that's what will remain. I want to show you, I want to show you a picture. Um, this picture is of organization. I just want to explain why this matters. Because this morning, this, I should have said this before you started looking. This morning may feel a little bit uh, lines connected to boxes, and at no point in this, in this morning, I will say it has already been said, the gospel has already been shared in song and in worship. But I'm not going to end at a parable, and I'm not going to end at Mount Calvary. Um, we're describing the structure of the body of Christ, which is part of the gospel, and, and matters for the long-term health of the church. Um, so I put this up here to, to say, I understand the message is a little bit like this, but it's, it's not a lot like this. This is... Uh, so I used to be a tiny part of this. Actually, not really. Like there's an entire ones of these that spawn out of these boxes. So you pick any one of these boxes and they have their own version of this. Like, and then another version of that. Almost every business has this. Even if you're like a, a mom and pop shop, you still have a command relationship model, okay? You just don't have stars. You don't get to be generals. But, uh, but they do. And, and what I wanted to show you here is it's complicated. And when we talk about uh, relationships and responsibilities, sometimes our tendency when we feel like we're at the bottom of it, okay, and I'm, I wasn't even on this. When I used to fly, I w- there would be one of these and another one of these and another one of these, and I might be at the bottom of the fifth one of these. I had no idea how it all worked. All I knew is mysteriously somebody gave me a takeoff time and a place to go 
And they figured out what weapons were supposed to be on the airplane. I didn't even figure that out. Remarkably, somebody in some distant box (laughs) gave me a call sign and said, today he should have this bomb on and not that bomb. Amazing how that happens. But I was so far at the end of the world, or I would like to say to keep my ego up, I was at the tip of the spear. So far at the tip of the spear, I didn't have time for all this, is how I would say it. Uh, But in that world, I, I didn't have time for it, and it didn't matter. And in a sense, it didn't matter. Because I was not a decision maker. I executed someone else's decision, right? The decision maker in this model has the stars. Well, actually, there's, a, there's an, one of these above him, right? And it ends at the POTUS. But the, he's a decision maker. All the stars, they're decision makers. And they're making these decisions. And way at the end of the train are the peons in the mailroom that make it happen. And I was ha- totally happy being that. I'm here to say the church is not like this. The congregation is a decision maker. Not like this. The rules do not come down from on high and fall down and trickle down, and the fellowship's not the mailroom. The fellowship is integrally involved in the direction and decisions that the church makes. So you really should know what it looks like. That's what I'm saying. Is this, and you can get it, I don't even know, I don't even know how I found that on Google. I don't even know if it should be there. Uh, (laughs) But this Not so much, but life in the church, it's right that you appreciate your responsibility in the fellowship, you know, and whether it's here, whether you're visiting here or whether you're growing into church or embracing church, you have a role and you're not the mailroom. You have a deciding role in the life of the fellowship. That's what I want to show you. And I want to do it out of Acts chapter six. Acts six shows how we're uh, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. Now, there's other verses in the Bible that if I wanted to simply talk about being elder-led, I would have gone there because it is more specific to it. Or if I wanted to talk about uh, being congregationally governed, I would go there. This morning, I'm going to kind of throw a rope out to those, mention them to you if you're taking notes, uh, talk about them a little bit. But what I like about Acts 6 is it has all of these relationships pulled up in the same narrative. It's really quite elegant how you see the elders at work and the deacons at work and the fellowship at work in their appropriate roles. And and so that's what I want you to see is we are, if we have time, we'll talk about what's a little bit stressed in our present circumstances, but we are now theologically elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed, and we're trying to be elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. So our request for elders does not adjust this picture. I just want you to see it and understand how it works. Okay, so let me read uh, chapter 6. You're going to see in the reading uh, the apostles. Uh, That's because the church hasn't blossomed out of Jerusalem yet. This is right before the church blossoms out of Jerusalem. Uh, So the church is still being led by the apostles. I think it would be fair to think of them as super elders in the sense that They stand in a role that's scripturally consistent with the work of elders. They just have way more cool points. They're they're way better. Uh, The Spirit is working through them in in an even more authoritative way. Okay, let me read here. 
Verse 1, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's cool, isn't it? The priests, the priests of Jerusalem would convert. That's, that's just fun to think about. This account is bookended. It begins with growth in the church, and it ends with growth in the church. In other words, and we're all familiar with this idea, that growth in the church brings good problems or problems. They're always good, but growth in the church introduces complexity and problems to the fellowship. And if they're dealt with well, the result is continued growth in the church. That's, that's the image here. It's been the image all the way through Acts. Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 have been talking about the, the leadership and the congregation doing the right thing. And out of that, the benefit is that the kingdom of God expands and grows. And you see here, right in the beginning, you see how the, the elders or these super elders, how they lead, Right? They're, they're encountered with this problem. And the problem is not that there's not enough food. The problem is actually one of racism. There is ethnic preference in this fellowship. It's in Jerusalem. It's dominated prim- primarily by Christians with a Jewish background. And what's happening is the widows of Greek background are being overlooked during the daily distribution of food. In other words, the Jewish widows are being fed with preference. And the Greek widows have no advocate. And the reason they have no advocate is because people are still ethnically aligned rather than aligned in their personhood with Christ. Okay? We can see this even in our own towns and cities where you go, well, that's a Catholic church, and that's a Catholic church, but that was an Italian Catholic church. And that was a Polish Catholic church. This is what's happening here. So just so you appreciate in your mind, this is no small issue. It's not that the logistics of getting food on the table is at stake. It's there is a spiritual issue in the life of the fellowship that is prioritizing one Christian over another Christian based upon their ethnic background. I want to say, because the, the, the apostles or these super elders are going to say, it's not right that they take care of this, but I want to be clear to say, they don't say it's not a big deal. 
It needs to be taken care of. It's extremely important. I mean, we're going to see who they appoint in a second. They don't appoint nobodies to this. So there's an issue in the church that's of significant concern to the health of the church that requires significant discernment and leadership. But the elders say it would not be right for us to do it because if we did it, we would be forsaking our first call, which is the teaching of word and prayer. In other words, the way the elders lead, the primary work of the elders in their leading is the teaching of the word of God and the leading through prayer. Teaching and prayer represent two sides of gaining God's will, right? When we, we understand God's will by understanding his word. And we understand God's will by once we understand his word, we come to him and he speaks with us. And I don't mean in massive, charismatic sort of ways all the time or even often, but to understand his word postures us to find his will in prayer. There's many people here who pray with no understanding of the word. The Lord would say, know the word and then come to me. And so the elders observe, rightly so, that their first call is to teach the word and to pray. In other words, know what God wants and then find out what he wants now. (laughs) Find his, his will for us. And they're saying we can't forsake that. No matter how important this is, we can't forsake that. And I have a sense. Now, this is not being said outright in these seven verses, but I have a sense that when the church was half the size, the apostles would have done this. They would not have, it seems to me, after reading this and rereading this, that in a smaller church with less people, Peter might have turned to James and said, can you go handle that? James would said, I got it. But the, the way the narrative starts is, in these days, it was getting big. It was getting big. So it's almost as though this issue surfaces, and I can almost imagine, just trying to give you a, a picture that might explain what happened, the apostles beginning to just to extrapolate and go, we cannot keep doing these things. Eventually, it's going to compromise the teaching of the word. I mean, you take the 12 apostles in a church of 12, they could have handled it. You take the 12 apostles in a church of 1,200, I reckon they could have handled it. You take the 12 apostles in a church that's 6,000 people and growing, which is probably not far from what it is. It's growing, and they begin to say, wait a second, there is some law of diminishing returns where the issues intrinsic to the life of the fellowship begin to challenge the very first things that makes it a fellowship. That's what's being pointed out here is at some point in the leadership, they're saying, that the issues of our fellowship threaten to consume the energy that would, other, that would be challenged to neglect the first thing. The teaching of the word is a first thing, and prayer is a first thing of the church. There's many places this is depicted in Scripture. Acts 20, Paul uh, is leaving Ephesus to go to Jerusalem. We actually read this earlier in the summer. Paul calls all the elders, notice the plurality there, he calls all the elders of the church together, and what does he say to them? He says, for years I did not stop admonishing you in the truth of the word. Do the same when I'm gone. And he says, he warns them, he says, wolves will come in the flock like and to destroy, and you need to be ready for that. 
in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are serving in a church in Antioch, a very Greek church. Okay? The ethnic issues continued. So they're serving in a very Greek church. And dissent arises as to whether new Christians who have a Greek background have to actually become full-fledged Jews or not. And what do they do? They get in a carriage, or I don't know whether they got in a carriage or rode a donkey or walked, but they go all the way back to Jerusalem and they place themselves beneath the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem to make this case. And the elders and the apostles of Jerusalem belabor this issue in Acts 15 and decide together that no, you do not have to become Jewish. Christ alone is sufficient for us. But the image there, it's a perfect image of where elders lead. The elders and the apostles, they lead in understanding what does God intend for us through his word. I would encourage you, uh, by the way, in fact, I'd like to make this a homework assignment. Do, do you do homework? First uh, and Second Timothy are great to talk about how elders should lead. And you should know it, even if you'll never be an elder, you should know it. You should know it so that one day when you're called to call an elder, you call the right elder. But First Timothy, it's five pages. If you'd read it this week, I'll give you a few reasons why. One is, in our church, we believe uh, that God has, um, God desires that men are in the role of authority in the life of, of the church. Now, I understand that's countercultural, but it's in the word. It's in First Timothy. We're going to spend some time on it next week, but I would love for you to wrestle with First Timothy on your own on the way there and to say, it's in the word. It's in the Word. And to not only say, well, it's in the Word, so, so yes, but to find a way to say, if, it's in, if, right, if God is constant and he's good, we can't just see something in the Word and submit. We need to see it, submit, and celebrate it. And that takes time. But I would encourage you, read First Timothy so that, so that you, like I, have wrestled with the Word on the way to the teaching. In addition, 1 Timothy talks about the, perp, the necessity of an elder to teach all the time, how he needs to be on guard. It tells the church how to discipline an elder, how to fire the elders in 1 Timothy 5, which you may need to know after next Sunday. Yeah, thank you. It should be a joke. Uh, so, so read 1 Timothy, and I think it will backfill uh, and supply much of what is being uh, subtly shown here with the elders saying, it's not right that we forsake the teaching of God's word for the serving of tables. Come, choose from among yourselves, men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. And it says, so that we can dedicate ourselves to the teaching of word and prayer. That's the first calling of the elders. What does it say about deacons? Well, it's worth noting that the need for deacons arises out of an issue that, again, I think um, elders might have in easier circumstances dealt with. In other words, look at the requirements for these deacons. Because I know the word is servant. I understand the word is servant. Look at the requirement for the deacons. Men of good repute. Full of faith, full of the spirit and of wisdom. 
that, those are not the requirements. That's not the description of somebody who you're trying to get to mop up after everyone's gone home. That's not the requirements of someone you're trying to get who their primary job title is to clean up the leaves or um, organize the hallway. That these are requirements. These are the sorts of things you'd want in someone who's going to lead and influence a community of good reputation, full of wisdom and the spirit. I mean, so, yes, a deacon is a servant. Okay, Christ was a servant. So let's not undermine the, undermine the identity with the overuse of uh, uh, filling a one word up too much. Yes, deacons are servants, but they're leading servants. What do you think they were doing with the serving of tables? You, you think they were actually serving the tables, or do you think they were working through the spiritual consternation of a church that has ethnic preference? Don't you think that's exactly the place you'd need men of good repute, who everyone in the church, Jew and Gentile alike, would say, yeah, but Fred, he's a good man. He, he's not going to side wantonly with his people. You need someone who everyone could trust. Whatever they come up with will be for the best. Because it's a moment where faction is about to give birth. In 1 Timothy, which you will read for your homework, uh, there the requirements for the, elder, the deacons are given. They sit right beside the requirements for the elders. They are essentially the same, with the exception that deacons must be able to teach the word. In other words... Uh, elders must be able to teach the word. Deacons, in other words, are to embody the same manner of living. They, it appears as though they have to have caught the gospel in the same measure so as to reflect it in their manner of life. They're just not responsible to teach it yet. That sounds not like a low idea, but a high idea. There's two eras of extremity, I think, that I've seen either personally or from a distance in the church. And not this church. This church, by the way, the deacons and the elders uh, are close to one another. I would say there is a kinship and a friendship um, that I have relied on uh, for, what, these six, eight years now. But I have seen from a distance two eras of extremity. One is uh, churches where deacons serve for the purpose of checking the pastor. Now, this is in a churches usually that are elder-ruled, not elder-led. So a church where, and some of you may have seen this, where there's a church where the pastor has the checkbook. He is every committee. He runs the place. And in those, in, in those communities, sometimes what rises up is a deacon body that is an opposing force to that pastor. That is not biblical. None of that is biblical. That's why we're talking about this. Is Christ is the head. Elders are shepherds. And deacons serve in the same place. Same, to the, serve to the same effect. Okay? But that would be an occasion where you might... Uh, uh, a corruption of the idea of deacon, which is they, they make it their challenge, their goal in life t- to figure out the direction God wants the church to go because they don't trust that the, this person's going to determine the direction that God wants the church to go. I've, I've been a part of church where the elders said, 
this is where we want to go, but the deacons did the budget and they said, well, we're not doing it. And it was this huge impasse of the pastor saying, but I thought we should do this. And the deacon's going, we're not doing it. And we write the budget. That is poison. So that, is an, uh, that would be an era of extremity where deacons were, I think, promoted beyond the intention of Scripture. I would say another era of extremity is uh, this kind of message. Everyone who serves is a deacon. Some churches in this role to make everyone feel important. You should feel important because of what God says about you, not because of a label. Okay, you are beautifully made in Christ. He has a purpose for you that is brilliant, that has little to do with a title, a silly old title. But nonetheless, you have the deacon of unlocking doors. You have the deacon who, you know those little cone water cups by the fountain? There's a deacon for that. There's a deacon for the round donuts and the deacon for the ones with the holes. You have to have two deacons for those. You have the deacons for the doors in and the deacons for the doors out. You have deacon this and deacon that. Everyone's a deacon so that no one's a deacon. Or what we say is, is I guess you don't serve the church unless you're a deacon. That is bad theology. We are all body, part of the body of Christ. So there's these two extremities. One is to say the deacon's got to figure out the direction of the church. You don't find that in Scripture. You find that they are a harmonious offspring of the leadership of the fellowship so that the church moves in the right direction. The other extremity is one where you find out that we've dumbed it down so much that everyone who serves is a deacon. And we'd say, well, sure, everyone who serves is a servant. But this is an office. What does God intend from the office? Incidentally, you should note how they were called. <clears throat> this, this shows you elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally governed. The elders, of the, the, the apostles in this case, they point out the problem. They challenge the church to the solution, but who, who selects the deacons here? The church. Look at it. Verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. The, the apostles put on the fellowship the responsibility to select from among themselves men who are qualified. Okay, this is part of what it means to be governed by the congregation, congregationally governed. And we do this, every May we do this. We engage in the very ancient ritual of deacon nomination, which dates all the way back to the New Testament moment in Acts 6. That's one way we see that elders lead, or or congregations govern. What are some other ways they govern? And these are elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, The congregation is responsible for discipline of its membership. Matthew 18 you know this, we know this part. We, we, at least we know part of this. We know where two or more are gathered in his name. There he is also. That's actually at the end of your responsibility to discipline, which we don't know that part as well. But it says, hey, if you have a brother who's in sin, you go to him, right? We're familiar with this. You go to him and you share. And if he, if, if he, if he repents, great. If he doesn't repent, you bring a friend, right? A, a third party, a witness who has his best and the truth of God in mind, that would be the goal. And, and you seek to bring that person towards repentance then. And if he still doesn't repent, what do you do? Do you bring him to the eldership? No. You bring him before the body. Christ says you bring him to the church. 
so that they would treat him as though he were an unbeliever. You see who's responsible there. This is why on issues of membership and discipline, we are careful to try to figure out how is the body involved in this. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, by the way, it's important to note that Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians, not to the elders in Corinth, who apparently maybe they don't even have them. I've always wondered, who, who's, who's at the helm? Uh, but he writes to the church in Corinth, to the believers in Corinth, and he says, I've heard, way back where I'm living, I've heard that you have someone living a sexually detestable life in your fellowship, and you're not dealing with it. And he says to the congregation, deal with it. Not bring it to the elders. No, he says, deal with it. You're responsible. In 1 Timothy 3 or 5, it says, hey, if you have an elder, so a pastor who's doing something wrong, he says, be careful. Be careful about indicting or accusing. But if you do, make sure you have at least two or three witnesses. You go to them and you, you work with them and try to... But if, you, if, if he doesn't listen or if he's in the wrong or if it's a serious situation, it says, you expose him before the entire fellowship so that the fear of God would set in on all the other elders. That's what it says. That makes you think, I'm responsible to teach the word well. You're responsible to know if it's being taught well. That's the word. In Revelation, the letters to the churches are to the churches. The, the word church there, ecclesia, is gathering, assembly, you, us. Whenever Paul writes a letter in the New Testament, it goes to the people of the church unless it's a letter to a person like Philemon or Titus. But any letter to the church is to the congregation, to the saints, those who are dwelling in the church in Ephesus. I will add to this. So duties to discipline and to censor, the duties to know the word and to be obedient to the word are there in scripture. Job responsibility of the fellowship. You're not in the mailroom. You're not a consumer of a product that's being laboriously developed by some other person in the common relationship, you are the body of Christ. Meaning when there's a need over here, likely the solution is somewhere else in the body. God gave his gifts to the body for the, wealth, the health and welfare of the body. There's a lot happening in the fellowship for which we are collectively responsible. I'll close with this. In our church, I said earlier, we're deacon, or excuse me, we're elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally governed. That's true-ish. Um, but I would say we're, we're elder-led, deacon-advised, congregationally governed is what I might say. Because <clears throat> when I when you called me to be your senior pastor six years ago, I was 34 years old. I had never even been a deacon. I had been an adult Sunday school teacher. You want that, making decisions? (laughs) 
especially when there's so much godly wisdom in this fellowship. What a great church to be in. So I said to the deacons, you're in the know on everything. And I've used the deacons that way. If I'm thinking about, there's nothing that the church council or the fellowship hears that hasn't gone through the ears and the the recollection and the meditation of the deacons. So that if you're an astute thinker or if you've been really close to this idea, you'd say, well then, if the deacons are playing the role of elders, I even called them overdeakers. In a sermon, I called them overdeakers once. Uh, That's what they've been, is overdeakers. Um, you might say, really, this sermon series is asking the church to have genuine deacons. Can we, can we ordain elders so that our deacons can deacon? That's where we are. We have a gap. And the gap is there is a, a, a lack. There should, be more, there should be more spiritual discernment in the, at the elder level, uh, given the size of our fellowship and the degree to which we care about discipleship. That's what we're asking for is just can we call more men to that work so that the care for the fellowship would increase. And in that case, the deacons can then migrate back to serving the church well on the internal issues. That's our hope. Okay, I'm done. I, uh, I'll close this in prayer. I'm grateful for your patience. I understand this is not on the top of everyone's list. So I'll, I'll place it in perspective. These sorts of things are important for the long game of the church. So it's important and right to preach all of God's word, and this is part of it. And there's been churches that know the good old story very well, but do not, do not take the long game of God very seriously. And they find themselves in trouble. We want to be an enduring fellowship before the Lord. Many, many years and decades, we want the Lord to speak well of this church. That's what we want. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, be with us along this decision and the many decisions of the church. Lord, place upon each one of us the right measure of responsibility and care uh, in knowing who we ought to be here. Lord, and I do pray in the fellowship that people would be enlivened by the fact that you've brought them here for a reason, that you have no wasted body parts, but that everyone is here for a purpose, which means you have, a, you have something you want them to do. Make us responsible, Lord, to you. It's your body. Help us to make it beautiful, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.